Welcome to a special bonus episode of the United Ireland podcast. Lawrence McKeown is an author, playwright and screenwriter from Antrim. His latest book, a memoir titled Time Shadows, details his experience as a prisoner in the H-Blocks, the Mays prison, where he spent 16 years, of which 1,621 days were spent naked in a prison cell, 1,079 days on a no-wash protest and 70 days on hunger strike. Over the past five weeks, we've been running special episodes on the Northern Ireland Assembly elections. But myself and Lawrence have been talking for a while back and forth about discussing his memoir. And it feels like now is a good time to do so. Uh, While on this podcast, we've been talking about the present and the future of the North to instead now reach back into the past. And in particular, around Lawrence's experience, uh, one of the countless experiences deeply shaped by the Troubles. These are complex experiences, complex discussions, And in Time Shadows, Lawrence leans into the minutiae, the routine, the rules, and extraordinary, unnormal norms of the micro-society within prison. This is also about living memory. I first met Lawrence through the actor Alwyn Frere in January 2017. Um, I don't know if you remember that, Lawrence, when I was chairing a a post-show discussion of the play Dance Marobe, a Project Arts Centre in Dublin. And what struck me during that conversation was how little we often hear from the emotional interiors of those who were imprisoned during the Troubles and the wisdom through intense suffering, of course, that such an experience provides. So there is something in pulling from the past uh, with all of that. And that's what we're hoping to do in this episode. Lawrence, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This is not your first book, of course. Would you like to mention some of the others um, you've written, including your poetry, maybe to contextualize your, your written work uh, to our listeners um, and how and why you approached this memoir? Yeah, um, my writing really began in the prison, and the, the latter part of it, uh, which was post-hunger strike. I was in prison for another 11 years after the hunger strike, and um, we began, I was very much involved in the, IRA Prisoners Education Program, which was very comprehensive. It's politics, war struggles, feminism, economics, whatever. And then the latter part of the uh, 1980s, I was in charge of the program. And it was around that time more by accident than the sign of poetry workshop started. Uh, greatly assisted that time by uh, Jesse Lendani from Salmon Publishing, which uh, Salmon Poetry, which had just uh, started up. I remember contacting Jesse and then ended up in contact with Read Alan Higgins, who's a very famous poet now. Um, but I think it was a time that it started uh, a more creative, still very political, but, but creative uh, element. That led on to us establishing uh, a magazine called Unglor uh, Gopher, The Captive Voice, which uh, my friend and, and his artistic collaborator, Brian Campbell, um, was appointed the, the first editor of and it continued for the next 11 years, uh, probably, or compiled clandestinely within the jail and then smuggled out and uh, printed on the outside and sold. Maybe we wanted a quality uh, magazine that would reflect our views and they would be expressed through poetry, prose, political essays, illustrations, uh, etc. And since trying to uh, challenge that few, very stereotypical few of, um, of IRA prisoners, or Republican prisoners. And then that, that in itself led to a book, Nor Meekly Serve My Time, which again was compiled clandestinely within the prison, meant to mark the 10th anniversary of the hunger strike, which was coming up at the time. And um, we compiled accounts from people who maybe 
had their last words for those who died on hunger strike or 10 people who died on hunger strike. Um, and we thought it should be like a sort of small pamphlet and it turned out it was such a volume of material that uh, we, we produced a book, uh, smuggled it out, no one would publish it. And uh, then I got released in uh, 1992. And thankfully a small publishing company beyond, beyond the pale had, uh, had set up and their aim was really to publish books that nobody else would. And uh, we eventually got the book published in 1994. Uh, so in a sense, that's where, where, where the writings began. Una. I led on to then works on the outside again with Brian Campbell and, and uh, after Brian died, tragically, um, continuing on, on myself. I suppose those writings initially were more about the, the prison experience because we felt that uh, we had a model as part of our education program, which was to write our own history uh, because no one else, no matter how sympathetic, was going to write it with an insight that we would have. And uh, it's not that there were a lot of sympathetic people about it at the time either. Uh, but the idea as today was to express what we were about and not this sort of two-dimensional image that might have been, been, been portrayed. And then that led on to numerous art projects, particularly as a playwright. And as you say, the, the book of poetry uh, that I published by Salmon Poetry, so it was like a common full circle um, in 2018, was really a collection of half the poems have been written in prison over a period of years, and the other half have been written after it. And I did it more as a, I suppose one time more as a hobby. And then really it was when I was uh, had a bit of free time and was looking over some of the poetry, I thought I'd, I'd make an attempt to get it published, and uh, yeah, Salmon Poetry published it. So um, that led on to uh, Time Shadows at the time of uh, the lockdown, the pandemic. Um, I mean, I'd written a lot of things in the past about the the experience of being on hunger strike, especially. But I'd never really sat down to um, give a full account from his arrest in 1976, right through to the end of the hunger strike in 1981. Mm. And um, another project were put on, on hold because of the pandemic. Um, I spent about five months just sitting down and, and, and literally uh, writing it, which was, um, go back to, this was 2020, uh, the end of it. And then left it for a while, uh, which you always like to do with works and go back because then you can notice where you've been overwriting or, or there's gaps in your writing. And um, yeah, compiled uh, Time Shadows and um, Gabrielle Williams and did illustrations for it. And thankfully again, Beyond the Pale um, books, they had, um, after they published about 50 or 60 books, they had gone out of business. Um, and thankfully they, they uh, came back into business um, just, just as I was about to uh, publish the book, so it was great that I was able to, to good publish. Timing. Good so, timing, good timing, good timing, yeah. Uh, so generally, a sort of short, short answer to your question that that, that made a lot of those publications come out of that of that particular time, mm. um, and broadened out in later years. From I, mean, I don't just write about oh, this is a memoir about my own experience in prison. A lot of other projects I've been involved in have been about. For instance, Green and Blue, which was a play that I wrote for the Boyce Theatre Company that I, that I do a lot of work with, was based on an oral transcript from um, former serving members of the RUC and, and Gardaí Shikana, who served on the border. And I know people found it very strange that someone with my background um, would end up writing it and writing it, which people seem to regard in a very humane way, um, and involved engagement with the guards and uh, the former RUC. So, the writing did broaden out uh, and, and, and into much wider topics, I suppose. But again, in one way or another, connected to the conflict. Mm. 
you joined the IRA when you were 16 years old, I believe, a decision I would imagine that, that people around you may have resisted. How soon after you joined were you imprisoned and did that feel inevitable at the time? Um, well, I was 16 when I struggled to join, I was actually 17 before I could, uh, could join. It wasn't uh, an easy um, process because I didn't know anybody <laughs> in the IRA. Um, but when I did finally, finally make contact with people, I was initially dissuaded by them. Uh, I remember meeting with uh, a man and a woman, I suppose it surprised me at the time that it was a woman uh, there as well. They were saying, look, you're going to get better uh, arrested or end up dead, uh, rethink your decision. And um, I did, I didn't change my, my opinion. Uh, so I was 17 when I actually um, joined the IRA. I ended up away from home about eight months later on the run. Uh, because um, I'd come to the attention of the security forces. And basically I was on the run uh, a lot of times in the north, sometimes in the south, and then finally in August 1976, was arrested. And uh, 1976 was, a, was a, a, a very special year, a particular year in the north, because I mean, a short history of it is whenever the conflict started, uh, gradually people were arrested and imprisoned and Republican prisoners, IRA prisoners have always down through the years protested to be recognised as political prisoners. And in 1972, following a hunger strike by Billy McKee and others in the Crumman Road prison, they were granted. Um, they were granted that status, the British called it a special category status. Uh, basically it was political status, they didn't do prison work, they didn't wear a prison uniform. They were housed in their own separate accommodation from all other prisoners. Uh, so everything in name, a prisoner of war status or political status. Um, that was at the same time as internment without trial was there. So that was where people were arrested and just thrown into prison without any um, court case or specific charges against them, just based on intelligence. And um, all of that then changed around 76. And I think it was really, I mean, it was outworkings of a very major comprehensive counterinsurgency strategy by the British devised by General Sir Frank Kitson, as they had done in other places like Kenya and Aden, et cetera, which was to um, try to change the nature, uh, certainly how, of the struggle, particularly the betrayal of it. And part of that was that uh, political status would be, would be done away with, that from the 1st of March, 1976, anyone arrested for their part in the conflict would just be treated as a common criminal, they would wear prison clothes, do prison work, be integrated with uh, one another, loyalist Republicans, with, with uh, uh, other just um, social prisoners, as, as, as it would be termed. And there's a whole change to the court system and power to arrest and detention, et cetera, et cetera. And it became a central plank in, 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 the, in that strategy. Now, I, at the time, was arrested. Like most other people, was very naive about this and didn't know really um, you know, the, the implications of it. We thought this is some sort of Silly policy, obviously, that the, uh, the Brits have thought up and six months down the road it will be, uh, be changed back and we'll have a political status again. And of course, that didn't happen. Um, and when the first prisoner, Kieran Nugent, was sentenced under the new regime, he was sentenced to three years. Uh, and Kieran was a very special, I suppose, prisoner in some sense. He was 18 years of age, but he had already been interned when he was 16, schoolboy internee. Uh, for about five months, he'd also been. Um, held in remand for about the same length of time. And then finally in 76, he was, he was sentenced, still at the age of 18. So it's, it's a, it flags up the thing again, that people were, were very young. I was 19 when I went to prison. Anyway, he was taken to the new part of the main prison, Long Cash, 
which had held the internment camp and held uh, sentenced political prisoners. Uh, and this was a new part of his bill called the H Blocks. He refused to wear the prison clothes, do prison work, and he was uh, beaten up, thrown in a cell. And uh, the only thing he had to clothe himself with was a blanket. And that began what became known as the blanket protest. It lasted for uh, <clears throat> five years, uh, which no one ever imagined. Uh, Kieran did his full time three years and then was released. And in 1978, in March, it intensified into a no-wash protest. Um, and basically our, our conditions were that we were locked in a cell 24 seven. Um, we were naked apart from a blanket. We had no TV, radios, books, magazines, anything at all like that. Um, initially we, we were allowed religious magazines and then later on they were, they were taken off us. Uh, so basically nothing as It's easier to say what the IT did have, which was a piece of sponge for a mattress. You had um, a gallon of water. You had a piss pot in the corner and uh, a Bible, the compulsory Bible. And that was what we had for, uh, for that five years. And um, during that, there was always attempts to um, end the protest by people on the outside. Our families organized uh, initially into the relative, relative action committees, headed up by people like Mary Nealis and Derry and uh, little women in Belfast, uh, Mike McCardle and, and numerous others. Uh, who, were, who were family members that are generally mothers, but uh, also wives, sisters. And then that broadened into a much wider campaign with people like Cardinal uh, Ophid, the, uh, the Primate of Ireland, visited the prison a number of times and spoke out very, uh, very forcefully about it. After he left the prison one time, he said he, the conditions he witnessed were worse than he had seen in the sewers of Calcutta. But despite all of those protests, um, and all of the behind the scenes talks and negotiations, nothing came of it. And um, in 1980, on the 27th of October, there was a hunger strike began. Mm -hmm. Let's and talk I about um, just a second before we, we get to that date, Lawrence. Like the context of the categorization is so key. I think people kind of who, who weren't around at the time can kind of forget about that. Um, and this, this, infinite six months you write about that a lot a lot in the book that everybody is is constantly saying well it'll in six months time in six months time it'll change but what was the categorization um situation when you when you first got to prison well i first arrested and ended up you're held on remand and that was in Cromlin road prison uh while you're on remand you're allowed to wear your own clothes uh, you don't do prison work um and you get visits and the exercise yard and association. So it's, 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 um, it was a fairly re relaxed regime in that sense. You're still in prison. Um, once you're sentenced and I was sentenced to life imprisonment, um, it was a yeah, totally different situation. I was taken to the eight blocks, um, was taken into the, the circle, as it's called, it's the central part of the H. I mean, it literally looks like a H from uh, an aerial view and told to, um, well, first of all, I was told about the prison uniform. I said I wasn't doing it. I was then told to uh, strip, taste the wall and strip, which I did. And um, I stripped down in my underpants and, uh, and a number of prison guards collared around me and one and shouted, uh, I said, strip, get the heap off. And we heard stories about uh, beating whenever people just arrived in the, in the blocks. And uh, it didn't happen to me. And it was something I read about in, 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 in uh, Time Shadows that often they're written for something like that, written for uh, a beaten physical assault is worse than the actual 
beaten because you're building maybe up more in your in, in your head. Anyway, it's a very very bizarre situation. I'm standing there naked in a, in a circle while there's other prisoners walking about who are clothed. There's there's prison guards, etc. And then I was uh, <clears throat> taken down the wing naked um, to the bottom of the wing and put in a on a cell of my own. And the following I was taken to a block where there were no other um, blanket men in it at the time. Now, by the time I was sentenced, the protests had been going on for nine months, and uh, I couldn't understand why I was taken to. H2 rather than H5, uh, where, where all of the others were. What I discovered later was there was no room in H5 that was, uh, was at full. And um, yeah, it was uh, at the time I remember well, it and thrown into a cell, door closed over, and uh, I was naked. I'd just been sentenced to life. Uh, I also knew that uh, the prisoners on protest weren't taking visits. So I had a visit with my mother and brother after the uh, the trial, and uh, we sort of knew them well. That was the last visit for some time, not knowing how long it would be. But that thing, I think, about the six months, I think, as I say in the book, it was almost like no matter what stage of the protest you were to talk about, uh, you know, no resolution to it or something. Six months come up, and I think it was a case of it was far enough away for something realistic to happen in, and yet not that far away that it would kill any hope in you. I mean, I think if you were set to start, well, you're going to be here for the next five years, and you're not going to be washing for three of those years, and there's going to be a hunger strike at the end of it, where people, 10 people die, then it would have been much, much harder to deal with, you know, so I think it was a, a psychological way of, uh, of coping with the mm. situation. Yeah. Do you want to read an, an, an extract at this yep. point? We're going to take a couple of extracts um, from you during this episode. So if you'd like to read something there. Okay, I'm going to read the, the part where uh, it was at him I was, I was sentenced. <clears throat> On the 26th of April, 1977, I was sentenced to the Belfast High Court to life imprisonment. Actually, five counts of life imprisonment, plus a few hundred years thrown in for good measure. Whereas Jackie McMullen had been the first to get a life sentence for attempted murder, in the years that followed, life sentences became very common, irrespective of whether the charge was murder, attempted murder, conspiracy to murder, or even possession of weapons or explosives. My trial lasted all of a day and a half. I refused to recognise the court as was the IRA's position at that time. Despite this, and in line with state procedure, the state appointed a barrister to represent me and a plea of not guilty was submitted by the barrister on my behalf. As it was a diplo court, there was just a single judge and no jury. The judge heard the evidence presented, reminded himself to be impartial, then handed down the sentence. Very few people were ever found not guilty in a diplo court, especially not in those early days of their existence. It was a tedious experience sitting through the procedure over the course of the one and a half days. At certain points, I did challenge inconsistencies in the prosecution's claims, but more by way of making a nuisance of myself rather than out of any genuine belief that I could change the outcome. I was bemused by the whole affair. It seemed unreal to me. I felt that we were all merely going through a sham, the conclusion of which had been decided from the outset. One memory that stays with me is a vision of my mother sitting in the public gallery on her own. She looked so vulnerable in that space with so many uniformed RUC and prison guards surrounding her. 
When Judge Rollins pronounced me guilty, he asked if there was anyone in the court who wanted to say anything on behalf of the defendant. My mother, who would not have been prepared for this, it was her first time ever in a courtroom, stood up. She was a very quiet person and very soft-spoken. A tall woman, she stood erect and uttered three simple but very powerful words. Years later, I wrote in a poem about that day in court, and this is from the, the poem I wrote. You looked so vulnerable that day in the world of Diplock courts, tired and sad with an air of inevitability. I longed to go to you and hold you, but the metal in kissing my wrists held me to another. Stripped of the rhetoric, our struggle was exemplified in that scene of the assembled might of imperialist power aligned against one woman who stood before them and said, he's my son. In the book, I'm I'm just really struck by the the minute of of the routine, and and the the small new ways of of doing things, the things that were available to you to allow you to write. You mentioned kind of at the top how um, so much work was done in a clandestine manner. Yep. Can you discuss the mechanics of corresponding with the outside world, or or how you were writing? Uh, poetry or or communicating indeed with other with other prisoners yeah well as i said we were we were locked in ourselves 24 7. uh we got out on a sunday for half an hour for mass if you were prepared to wear the, the prison treasures um that was only part of the uniform you had to wear so you were naked apart from the bare treasures and you could also get a visit half hour visit once a month if you were prepared to wear the the full prison uniform uh most people did that. We were encouraged actually to, to help with communication with a number of prisoners, uh, including some who died on the hunger strike, Joe McDonald and um, Raymond Grease. They never took visits. So Joe never seen his wife and children until he was on hunger strike and then he, he died. Um, but that was, that was our lifeline to the outside. Uh, we had to smuggle everything into the jail. Anything you smuggle had to be hidden in your body. Um, so you could take out um, small notes. Um, we would write on cigarette papers. They had to be smuggled in. Uh, a pen had to be smuggled in. Um, cling film had to be smuggled in. So we would have then a pen and um, cigarette papers and write on it and, and, and very, very small, small writing. I've, I've seen some of the ones I wrote myself and it's probably amazing how anybody could read them. We got it off to a fine art, how miniature they could be. But that was how we communicated. Um, to, to the outside world and sometimes to the prisoners in other other blocks. It was how um, Bobby Sands did all his writings and the materials went out. Bobby Sands was the uh, the PRO uh, publicity officer for the for the blanket men and uh, was um, a prolific writer, uh, poetry, songs, songs that you know Christy Moore has, has sent in and others have have recorded or played. Um, and that was really how how we did it. Similarly as Tobacco was smuggled in, we weren't allowed to smoke. Anything we had had to be smuggled in and hidden inside our bodies, which is literally in your, your anus, uh, because you had regular searches. Uh, we had mirror searches where you were bent over a mirror. Uh, we had refused to bend over it and would be beaten over them. So it was, and that's that sort of amazing, the, um, the amount of communication that did go on in those, in those circumstances. When you go down on a visit, you could, uh, you have, there's small comms, communications, or chaks as we call them, from the Irish word chaktrak, 
um, hidden in your mouth, which you could either pass to other prisoners on another block, or you would pass to your visitor. And there was a, a number of people who would have visited the jail, young women again, who uh, and women were the backbone of, of, of all that external uh, assistance to the jail, because they could come up and, and meet someone and pass over a, a calm and a kiss. Uh, and it was really that, that way that all of the, uh, I mean, I remember smuggling in articles from the Irish press that still was going at that time um, to help us learn, learn the Irish. So basically anything we had in it had to be had to be smuggled in and then when we had it it had to be hidden in our bodies uh, to keep it um we ended up getting uh, small radios that they made well they weren't actually that small but they were um smuggled into so that we could we could hear actually the news and I, in some sense it was so sophisticated that we, we maybe had more information than, than the ordinary person outside because you know when any one wing which held say maybe 40 to 45 men if they were taking visits, maybe somebody was from Derry, somebody was from Belfast, Tyrone, um, Antrim. So you're hearing back word from all of those areas about protests that were going on and, and what was happening outside. And then we had a radio that we could actually listen into uh, the BBC radio also, but would have probably been the main one. And also there was, yeah, there's a lot of mm. uh, communication going on. And the Irish language played a large part. I mean, I went to Yeah, I want to ask you about that actually, like, because there's a, a yeah. really interesting, uh, passage where you kind of discuss um had the 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 prison guards you know actually taken the time to learn the Irish language they probably would have garnished a lot of intelligence from the the prisoners yeah. communication so I mean like what role did the Irish language play well it, it, it was a number of things uh, say I had very little Irish I mean a couple of words even though I had been in Irish class in the secondary school and never I never I was actually thrown out of it at one time by the teacher um, there was only a few words that had remained with me. Once the whole protest started, there was a need to communicate because you're locked behind, you know, you're behind closed doors. So how do you shout over to someone else anything which you don't want the uh, prison guards to hear? Um, so there was first of all then a need for a language or a way to a way to communicate. The other thing is whenever. Republican prisoners went to jail, usually that's what they did, start to learn Irish language, but they would do it on you know, very sort of normal manner. They would have books and all the rest of it. We had a few people who um, had bits and pieces of Irish, um, but it took a while for it to develop. And really it was when we had people like uh, Shana Walsh, who I learned most of my Irish from, and Bobby Sands, who was a close friend of, 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 uh, of Shana's. They both were, well, very fluent, if not totally fluent. Um, I mean, gone to the Gale camp, they'd learned it. Both of them had been in the cages of Long Cage where they had political status before and had spent a lot of time on it. So we were able, after about 18 months in the protest, streamline the learning of it. Uh, and that allowed us then to speak out the, out, out, out the doors to one another. And uh, even for those people who maybe didn't have a big interest at the start, there was then the uh, curiosity factor, you know, they hear someone else speaking on it. So what, what's been said there? What's what's happening? And as it spread, then I suppose it's like just growing up in an Irish language speaking community, you just then start to learn it, even if you weren't actually proactively trying to learn it. But it, it you know, played an absolutely critical role because we could shout back and forward, not just from one side of the wing to the other, but from one wing to the other or from one block to the other, which we did at night. And I think it was again just the um, maybe the general attitude of the prison guards had about the whole protest, which they thought would just bother up and die, I suppose, the type of people who weren't. They've not committed to putting in a lot of energy into it. 
um, attempts that capture bits and pieces of of writing um, that, that that we had written, but then again we we write on the wall um, with um, what we also smuggled in was the the lead out of, out of pencils, and even though we were in a no wash protest and the walls were covered in excreta, but always leave a place clear that you could write on close to the door when you were doing the classes. And the way the classes were done was, I mean, you literally go up to the door and if you're learning it and you listen to the, the moon show, the teacher, um, giving out the words, phrases, um, you wrote them down on the wall and then you memorized them and played around with them. And then later years, I started to teach. No, the people who had a bit more of the language taught the ones below them. So you would have the bun rang and then the man rang and then the art rang. Um, and I ended up teaching an art drawing, even though I'd run into prison with, as I say, basically no Irish. Um, so yeah, it had a very critical role. And then it became a thing of, um, you know, it was like a, I suppose it's the same as the way that the language, the Irish language has really developed in the North over that period of time, largely um, prompted or certainly to some degree prompted by the whole prison protest and the fact that we were learning Irish people on the outside were thinking, well, prisoners can do it in H blocks, then we can certainly do it out here. And you've got the growth in Irish language schools, starting out with D school and Bond school, and now you've got, you know, Mon school now. Um, whereas maybe in the South, ironically, where you know, that was compulsory, then people don't like things that are compulsory. So you start to have a, you know, an antagonism against it. For us, it was more like a something you want to do in an eager way, in a curious way, and in a sense, in a it was a revolutionary act you know, to learn this language and be able to speak it. Um, so, the, so the prison guards couldn't understand. And it mm. was another way of, of undermining the system and what they were trying to do. Let's talk about how the protests evolved and how you traversed them. Um, you're going to read an extract in a little bit, but just when no. did you realize that these were not going to end in six months time i think probably for me um in 19 january 19 and um 79 they moved 32 of us 32 prisoners including bobby sands and a number of other people who died on the hunger strike uh brendan Hughes, who at that time was the uh, the oc the officer commanding the republican prisoners uh Beck McFarlane, who who later became the OC during the Hunger Strike in 1981, moved a lot of us to um, H6, which we thought was somehow to try to isolate leadership in the camp. Um, I'm not really sure that was the case because it didn't make much sense because once you moved one person, somebody else took over as, as, as a leader in, in a wing or a block or, or whatever. And really it was there when uh, there's a number of people there like Bobby Sands, like Shana Walsh, Brenda Hughes, Beck McFarlane, Joe Barnes, Pat McGowan, people who had been imprisoned um, before, people who were just a few years older than the rest of us. And by then had a better idea of where this criminalization policy sat within the whole, I suppose, British government overall policy in relation to the conflict. I think it was probably then that it, it was really dawning on us only that this was going to be a sort of a longer drawn out thing than we thought. And I think, but really for me, it was that period of over 1979, which which lasted from January to September, and then they, they split us up and put us back into the other three blocks again, each three, four, and five. Um, that really, from hearing discussions and lectures that, that, that some of the people were doing in each six, then you, you got a clearer view of where things were. Uh, it was around that time that there was talk of 
uh, having a hunger strike then in 1979 because the Pope was due to visit Ireland and uh, there was suggested to uh, the Republican movement outside that there should be a hunger strike to coincide with the Pope arriving in Ireland and that would really raise um, publicity on it. The Army Council outside advised against that, that it was only because Cardinal Lafay was already involved in some sort of talks that was going on Boris, Boris and the church. Uh, but what they would do instead was to set up what became known as the National Anti-Hatred Block Armageo um, campaign. We must remember there were women prisoners in the same conditions as us in Armagh prison. Lesser numbers, but, but nevertheless, uh, in the same conditions, including Red Farrell, who later uh, was shot dead by the SAS in, in Gibraltar. Um, and I suppose that was the time when we knew this is, this is, this is much bigger. Uh, it was also around the time we formulated our five demands because people were saying, well, whenever you say political status, what, what are you talking about? What, what does that actually look like? And basically, the, the National Hate Block campaign said, well, it's uh, the right to wear our own clothes, the right not to do prison work, uh, the right to free association, and the rest was like, you know, a, you know a parcel and visit um, each week. And um, the, the return of lost permission. So we put it into more, what would you say, um, we articulated what it meant, uh, what this, this status would, would mean. Um, and then you knew there was going to be this period of time where, where people now say would hold these rallies and uh, would hopefully bring things to a head. But I say by the time October came in 1980, um, the talks between Cardinal Lafayette and the Northern Ireland office had, had ended. Uh, unsuccessfully. I mean, you really, it's well, well, with two options, one to continue as we were doing, and we couldn't do that. You couldn't stay in that type of protest. And definitely people's health had suffered, people's mental health had suffered, um, sometimes greatly. Other people had left the protest because of family pressures or whatever. It just, it, it wasn't something you could just um, continue with indefinitely. And that's when uh, it was decided to have a hunger strike. And seven people started it including Brendan Hughes, and uh, it continued for 53 days. It ended when it appeared that there was some offer of an agreement. Nothing was finalized, nothing was put down in writing, uh, but Sean McKenna, one of the hunger strikers, was in a critical uh, condition at the time, and Brendan Hughes called off the hunger strike. Bobby Sands was the OC of, of the prisoners, and in reality, it should have been Bobby. Who, who would either call off or, or not call off a hunger strike. People could leave it individually if they wished. But uh, anyhow, Brendan called it off. And then Bobby Sands, was, was, who was the OC, who had taken over from Brendan Hughes when Brendan went on the hunger strike, was left with the situation on the 18th of December, 1980, that um, there was this vague sort of um, talk about concessions, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Bobby, to his credit, tried his best to see if there was any merit in them, if the administration were genuine about it. The prison governor, Stanley Hilditch, who was off on holiday, actually cut short his holiday and arrived back in the prison. And as soon as he arrived back, it was very clear that um, there was going to be no concessions, um, either from him or from the prison authorities. Despite that, Bobby still tried, I suppose, to um, see if there was any um, scope for, for manoeuvre that continued into the new year, into 1981. And when, uh, again, it was clear and the administration showed it very clearly, and I, I, mean, I describe it in the book, Bobby was left with, with no choice um, but to say there would be another hunger strike. And this time it would be different than the, the previous one. 
he would be the first person on it and he would join it. He would start it on his own. Uh, and it'd be two weeks before Francis Hughes would join it. And then there'd be an oral one week before uh, Patsy Harriman and McCreese would join it. And that's all, there'd only be four people on it. Hmm. And Bobby fully thought that uh, he would, would die. We all thought, yeah, he will definitely die uh, when it started because the Brits will want their, their pound of flesh. And then out of the blue, um, ironically, Frank McGuire, who had been a supporter of our demands and who had visited the jail on a number of occasions, he died. He was a member of Parliament, Westminster, British Parliament. And um, the British government called a by-election. Bobby Sands put up that action. And one of the real irony is, and you mentioned at the start of your program, or program there about the elections in the North, they are tomorrow, the 5th of May, which is the anniversary of Bobby Sands' down. And it was his election, um, probably, which prompted Sinn Féin and Republicans to abandon their uh, abstentionist policy, which was not to take part in elections and take part in uh, institutions. And uh, I suppose everything can be traced back to, to Bobby's election in April as, as a member of parliament, which we then thought was going to save his life. So from a point where he started the hunger strike with us, my very definitely he's going to die he won the election. We were it was euphoric. So I would say my highest point in the prison. I would say everybody else who was in jail, no matter how long we were in jail, that was the highest moment. And we thought, because how how can you say someone's a criminal if they've been elected to your parliament and elected by more votes than Maggie Thatcher was ever elected by? Um, but it became very clear within a couple of days that uh, the British weren't going to uh, make any moves. In fact, the only move they made was to rush through legislation which in future would bar any other prisoners from standing for elections. Prior to that, a prisoner could stand, which is why Bobby was able to stand for election. Um, but once he was elected, they introduced legislation that uh, that barred any future prisoners from dying. And whenever they did that, we uh, we would reckon then they were going to let him die. And then if they let him die, a member of parliament, then they would let others die. And that's and that's what they would do. And, uh, and I mean, again, talk about elections, looking back on it, during the hunger strike, you had Bobby elected to the English Parliament. You had Kieran Duffery elected to uh, Minster House, to the Doyle, and he also died on Hunger Strike. He was elected as a TD for Calvin and Monaghan. Um, all our prisoners, Paddy Agnew from County Louth, were, were elected TD as well, uh, and others closely, closely um, run on. So it was. So it, so it is. I find it quite ironic, and I've written about it on Facebook about how uh, tomorrow uh, an election. Where everybody thinks that uh, Sinn Féin will become the, the dominant party uh, for the first time from never the origins of the state and that that's the anniversary of, uh, of Bobby. Mm. Would you like to read an extract um, with regards yeah. to maybe you're your joining the hunger strike? Yes, I will do. <clears throat> um, I had volunteered for the first hunger strike and, uh, and, and wasn't um, selected for it, although at the, the latter part of it, there were 30 of us um, went on to the hunger strike at, at uh, 50 days and then we were only on it for three days. So I'd really volunteered. Um, so this is about, um, this piece I'm going to read was about 1981 when the, when the hunger strike had already been underway. I'd written to Pick, this is Pick McFarnham, I'd written to Pick a few weeks earlier inquiring how men were selected and if he had my name amongst those on the shortlist. It wasn't a case of bravery or ego. I simply felt I could go through with it. I wasn't married and was serving life. And I felt I had a responsibility to those around me and to the struggle. I wasn't unique in that sense. 
as I knew my views and reasoning were shared by a large number of others. Several days after Vic had informed me that I'd be joining the Stalk, the hunger strike, I received a call from the Army Council. It read simply, Comrade, you have put your name forward for the hunger strike. Do you know what this means? You will most likely be dead within two months. That means, Comrade, that you will be no more. Reconsider carefully your decision, AC, which was for Army Council. Those may, may not be the exact words, but it was as blunt as that. I hadn't expected the calm, and the words did start with me at first. Seeing my death written in black and white appeared very stark, but it didn't cause me to rethink my decision. My earlier examination of the situation had been done seriously and responsibly. I was ready to go ahead. I can't recall much about the first visit I had with my family when it was decided I was going on a hunger strike. That may seem strange, but as I had already prepared my family for such an eventuality during the first hunger strike, I suppose the shock was therefore somewhat mitigated. Nevertheless, I'm sure the strain was powerful. I only discovered later, once I had begun the stalk, that my mother had suffered a mild heart attack in 1978. I hadn't been aware of it, as she had ensured I wasn't told, no doubt trying to save me from worrying. I was angry that I hadn't been told, though I understood the motivation behind it. Admittedly, I know also that, had I been told, it probably would not have altered my decision to go on hunger strike. From the little I can recall from that first visit, I spent most of it trying to inject a lighthearted tone to the discussion and reminding them that I wasn't yet on the fast and anything could happen between now and then or even during the stop. It's the end of that. Peace. 70 days. When I hear that, that number, um, you know, I, I just find it hard, hard to, hard to conceptualize. Um, yeah. What do you remember of the various stages of that, that maybe people might not expect would be memories from such a, well, journey, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, the policy was whenever you um, were on the hunger strike, you were, you were, you remained in the, in the prison wing you were in for a while, but after a bit, um, three weeks, you were moved to the prison hospital. And one time we thought this was pretty to isolate the people in hunger strike, but I suppose um, I would now accept the argument they would have made the, the prison administration that it was easier for the, uh, not that there was any administration of medicine, but at least you were under observation, everybody was in one place. And if there, if there was any resolution to the hunger strike, if there was anybody critically ill, then it would be faster to give them you know, um, food, nutrition, whatever else. Um, I was in, I remained in, in, in the block, in H3, uh, the, the wing that, that Bobby had been in, Bobby Sands. Uh, by the time I joined the hunger strike, four people um, had already died. One died shortly afterwards, Martin Horson, and, uh, and um, I'm sorry, Joe McDonald. Um, so four died before I joined it, before I moved to the prison hospital, two others, Joe and Martin, had died. Um, I knew the others on it to, to varying degrees. Kieran Duffery I knew very well because he was next door to me in Ramond. Um, when you went to the prison hospital, it's a sort of a bizarre situation. Um, because you're in the hospital, you didn't have to wear the prison uniform. You wore um, pajamas and a dressing gown. So you couldn't be charged with not wearing the prison uniform. 
because you're in the hospital, you're also detained on fit for prison work. So you couldn't be charged not doing prison work. So the irony was that you're no longer a protesting prisoner. Um, and you could therefore get access to newspapers and um, radios, etc. Uh, we would be taken into the canteen for association in, in the evening. Food would be seven. There's, I mean, it's a hospital, but it's 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 a prison. It's still um, cells, but with sort of hospital beds in them. Uh, food would be brought in. Breakfast would sit on a table in the morning until lunch came. Breakfast would be taken out. Lunch would be set in. Uh, lunch would be taken out. Evening tea would be set in. And um, that never really annoyed me in terms of you know, food sitting there. We weren't going to eat uh, because because you're on the hunger strike. But one of the things that um, I really noticed as time went on that uh, as my, my sight deteriorated, first became like double vision and then became uh, very blurred and then lights began to really know you. But as, as, as my sight started to deteriorate, my sense of smell really, really heightened to, to an incredible point. Like you'd smell things that other people couldn't smell, including water. And what we're always advised was to take at least six pints of water because it's the big flush of your system. Your body is cannibalizing itself. There's all sorts of toxins being created in your kidneys and liver under, or under massive pressure, particularly your kidneys. And it's what happened to a couple of people who uh, were on unrestricted, particularly Martin Hurston, because his kidneys collapsed um, because he wasn't able to keep the water down. Uh, luckily, I never became as sick until, until, until the end of close to the end of the, the hunger strike, but um, some other people became sick at an earlier stage um, and couldn't keep the water down. And that, that led to real difficulties. Um, but I say the sense of smell, the floor polish, of even I read about in the book, one prison guard wearing aftershave, old spice aftershave, and it had been several days previous and he uh, had washed the charge several times since, but he brought me in a jug of water and uh, to me I just smelled as if the jug was full of old space after you. And I suppose it's, it's um, during the time I was there, um, the other or four prisoners died. And I described in the book, you could use actually the sound of death, not in the, the sound that the person who's down makes, but the, the hospital sounds. Um, there would be a trolley, the same as you would get in a, a hospital with them long sort of aluminium trolleys that they put sheets on, bed linen on. And they're very light. So if you're wheeling it in, it rattles a lot or it bangs against the, the metal grills coming through them. It, it makes a lot of noise. But they bring that in and when someone died and that's how they removed their body from the, from the hospital ward. Uh, they were put onto this trolley. And once a dead dead, it go on it, and then it doesn't bang or rattle the same way. You, you still be conscious if you hear it maybe hitting against the metal grills, but be more of a dull thud rather than that tinny sort of rattle sound. There would be families coming in. Um, people were allowed to come in and stay in the hospital if their, their relative was in a critical state. And then it happened in some cases, like here in Doherty, where he was very ill, around about... Um, 50 odd days and his family were allowed in. But he um, he didn't die until 73 days, so his family was in was in the hospital for about two weeks. And uh, horrific, horrific for his parents. Uh, my family were allowed in after uh, 68 days. And as I described in the book, it was because one of the um, prison guards, who was also a medical officer, who was a trained nurse, a lot of work trained nurses, 
he actually said to a doctor, look, I can't say how long he's going to live, but he's 68 days on hunger strike, so he's going to die anything really over the next couple of days. And I think his family should be allowed in. And uh, the doctor, who was a strange doctor at the time, I hadn't seen him before, he uh, agreed to that. And my family were allowed in. And what had also happened um, already for, for several weeks was that a number of families had intervened in the hunger strike. The prison wouldn't uh, force feed us. We wouldn't eat ourselves. But if you ended up in a situation where you lost consciousness and were in a coma, what's called power of attorney shifts to your next of kin. Uh, usually again, always you know, the mother or the wife, women, always. Um, and a number of people have been, had intervened when their relative had, um, had lost consciousness and that inevitably increased the pressure on, on others. And, and people like Father Fall was campaigning very uh, forcefully at the time that, that mothers and wives no, should intervene on, on the basis that you know, if you're a good wife or a good mother, you would do this, which the application was that uh, if you didn't, if you respected your, your relatives, um, desire not to, for you to do it, then you're, you're somehow a bad mother or wife or whatever. And basically, sorry, I'm alive today because my mother came in and uh, my father, my brother and sister, all of them except my mother asked me to come off the homeless break and, and said it wasn't. And uh, my family weren't political and most people I met in prison, their families weren't political because Republicanism wasn't a vibrant thing in the, in the 1960s. You could, you could sort of name the families on uh, on two hands, and fingers of two hands of, of, of who, who were, because it's a whole new generation uh, that were responding to the situation on the ground. Anyway, I always had a very, for some reason, close relationship with my mother, even though then I was away from home early, then I was in, in prison, then I was flying the protest. She never once ever um, used her love for me against me. Um, and what I did recall her saying, um, oh, I was lucid on that 68th day. And she'd said about, um, you know what you have to do and I know what I have to do. And it was sitting very gentle, which is a very soft-spoken woman. And then they were allowed to stay in a cell across the, uh, the way from me. I don't recall speaking on the 69th day, but apparently it was, and it was a bit incoherent, or I was calling people different names, thinking of who I was speaking to. And then on the 70th day, the morning of the 70th day, which was a Sunday, uh, apparently, and I was told this later, that uh, the doctor, prison doctor, came around and checked me and detect your uh, reflexes and see that there are none. And at that point, he pronounced me in a deep coma that I wouldn't be coming out of, unless there was medical intervention and uh, my mother agreed to it and I regained consciousness in the intensive care unit of the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast uh, there's armed ready scars soldiers at the, at the bottom of the bed and I, I, I was practically blind at the time what you could make out which is dark dark figures and then the following day I was taken to the military unit of Musgrave Park Hospital where prisoners were taken and uh, there was the other number of prisoners who had already uh, been taken off the hunger strike and he was there for three weeks and then taken back to the prison literally just before the hunger strike was called off on the 3rd of October uh, but the time I went back I was still and at the end of the hunger strike I was seven stone whip when I'm six foot two and um, when I joined the hunger strike it was ten and a half stone and that was probably a bit two stone under it because all prisoners were suffering from malnutrition by that, that stage after, after five years of protest. Um, I was blind, practically, going back to the, uh, to the blocks. 
And um, but as I say, the hunger strike was called off a few days after I arrived back, and we were um, we were given the right to wear our own clothes. It wasn't any worked out agreement at the end of it. The Republican president just called it off because the tactic of hunger strike was no longer working. I mean, families were intervening, and other families said they would intervene if they had the chance. Um, and on that basis, it was called up. As I say, we were given the right to wear our own clothes, which out of the five demands was the most significant on, on, on two levels. Uh, symbolically, we'd said we'd never wear the, the prison uniform, which is where the title for that book, uh, Normally Serve My Time, it's, it's the second part of the refrain, I'd wear no conflict uniform, Normally Serve My Time. Uh, so we hadn't worn the uniform, uh, which we've already seen as a badge of criminalization. On a practical basis, it was extremely important because with their own clothes, we were able to get out of the prison cell for the first time in five years. We were able to meet together quite into the exercise or now I wasn't going anywhere for several months because of the physical state I was in. But in general, prisoners were able to meet in the canteen, get their meals, go out and get showers. Uh, locked, still locked up the rest of the time, but it was uh, a very significant change. And it was the start of a whole new period. Um, it was a, I mean, it's a very significant um, moment in many regards, significant year, not at least the fact that 10 people had died, but it was the end of that type of physical type protest. Um, there was never going to be anything again, like the blanket protest and the white protest or 10 people then we had in a sense exhausted that. And uh, I've compared it in the book with um, talking about Ernie O'Malley, who wrote out from prison in the post-1916 year in. Then about Ireland has created you know, good rebels, but not so many uh, revolutionaries. And um, and my understanding of that is what it was was like, yeah, we can take it, yeah, take it on, we'll take it, we'll fight back. Um, but as I say in the book, I believe more in that adage, the um Yard, Kathy Shield, person who isn't strong has to be clever. And I think we were forced to be clever because we had exhausted all of that. Um, and it was a very soul searching period. We knew we just couldn't stay. We were still refusing to do prison work, but we knew we just couldn't maintain that indefinitely. And some people already left the protest, etc. And new people coming into the jail weren't been allowed to join the protest, uh, even if they were refusing to work. So it was a, a real period of soul searching, but the decision was then made that we would go into the system and we would um, subvert it or mm. destroy it, whatever you want to call it from within. And that's, that's what we did. And, Less than two years after the end of the hunger strike, there was a mass escape, which was the largest in the, the history of British prisons. When the IRA took over one of the H blocks, H7, um, commandeered the, the food lorry and drove to the front gates. And only for the operation, taking a bit longer than uh, was planned for, the lorry would have gone straight out of the prison and crossed the border. So um, if, they, if the hunger strike killed off, the um, criminalization program and then the escape period. And after that, uh, in fact, I mean, it's a bit funny in some sense, prior to the, um, the escape, the prison rules were that we uh, had to do prison work. After the escape, the rule was that we're not allowed to do prison work. Uh, we would be confined to the H block. So by another way, we had ended up getting our second demands and that was, that was us. And in the years that followed, we, we, we uh, we got the rest of the demands. By the time I left the prison in 92, totally transformed situation, but had all the 
demands that uh, we had been aiming for in the years that followed. There were even more um, relaxation where the prison guards just left the, the prison wings totally. Doors were open 24-7, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I would have been on brand enough terms the prison guards leaving. They would have been with, with me. So, I mean, I've always said it. It's, there was a there was war in the jails because of a policy. The policy was criminalization. Whenever that policy was dropped, then there was no reason for a war. People could coexist. We're still in prison, uh, still looking to escape. But in the meantime, we would get on with doing the things that we're doing, such as you know, boarding workshops, education. I joined the Open University and did a degree there. And then when I got out of jail, I did a, a doctorate uh, and I wrote it about the prison experience. Um, so a lot of these issues happen because of policies and policies don't arise out of, out of uh, thin air. It's people who decide on policies uh, and create them. And, and ironically, there was a probation officer uh, called Crawford, uh, who used to be a probation officer in the, the cages of Long Case in, 70, in, the, in the early seventies. And when he heard that the, the criminalization policy was been introduced, he wrote a short book about it and he foretold everything that was going to happen. He said, like, we're putting on prisoners, we'll never ever go along with this. You're going to have war in the prisons and, uh, and that's going to spread to the outside, which it did. A lot of prison guards were, were shot dead by the IRA on the outside. So I suppose the lesson from it all is um, who draws up these policies and why? Uh, I mean, internment without trial, it feels that had to go out the window. Then the next step was to try to criminalize Republicans. And really it wasn't until finally someone, which was Tony Blair, basically, I suppose, sat down and said, okay, uh, everybody around the table may not like you, may not like your policies, may not like your past, but if we're going to actually settle this, then we need everybody to be treated equally. And, and then let's see where we go from there. And I mean, I suppose tomorrow the election, we're still looking at that idea of how do we treat one another equally and how do we um, have procedures in place and standards in place and justice in place and equality in place that uh, you know, gives that respect to, to, to everyone. So, um, mm. a, lot of people have, a lot of people have spent the past couple of years, you know, thinking, sitting with themselves and, and going back over, over their lives. And, um, you know, there's been, there's been time, you know, um, in, in, in this, in this odd era. I'm wondering whether, you know, when you took that time to write this memoir, was it traumatic to to delve back into those events? I mean, obviously you live with them every day, you know, so, yeah. but, and, and you've written, of course, extensively about them before. This is a, a very specific book though, um, related to your own, own experience. Was it, is it traumatic or was the process of writing this book more therapeutic? Um, I think it was more um, therapeutic um, than anything. If it was anything, it was. I mean, I think I've said in, in public talks that I I probably write about the period now or speak about the period in, in, in a slightly different way. And that's not that uh, when I did it previously that that was wrong or something. I think there was a time, even going back to normally served my time, which was to give a real account. It's very politicized, you know, the British introduced criminalization. If they criminalize us, then they criminalize the IRA, they criminalize the Republican movement. They almost criminalize the whole history of Republicanism. They just are nothing but criminals. Um, 
that's generally accepted now by anybody. Like, there's not the need really to. I mean, I've seen me in interviews with the BBC come back 15 years ago, and I mean, nobody's nobody trying to argue that line anymore. I mean, it was uh, more about the policy being wrong. Whereas now, I'd like more about the the, the, the personal and, and and particularly the impact. And uh, and in this book, I'm saying impact on my own family, maybe that's because I'm older, of daughters of my own. Um, and you wonder, like, if they were in hunger strike, what would I, how would I feel? Um, you think of other situations, the pettiness of, of, of some rules and, and why. I mean, I speak in the book also about uh, the humanity of some of the, the prison guards, and you wonder, like, why did some specific person at this specific time do this specific act? And um, I never know, it was just um, someone had a, you know, a, an act of generosity or, 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 or humanity at that time. So I thought he was more therapeutic than trying to, yeah, reflect on a very you know, personal way. I mean, I speak on it about my father, who um, I only seen when I was on the hunger strike. It's the first time I'd seen him in five years. And um, that's probably an area that I haven't, the area that I haven't really talked about in the past. And um, I mean, I think, uh, well, I described it more in the book, like how once supposedly knew I was involved in the IRA and that was totally against what he would have wanted and thought I was throwing away my life and education and all the rest of it. And um, and didn't visit me, but you know, I said it was because he was claustrophobic, didn't like going to the prisons, all the rest of it. But I think again, it was really a, a thing of um, didn't want to face me in that situation. I could see how now looking back on it, it probably was very challenging for fathers, particularly because their sons were like 17, 18, 19, joined the IRA and they're off in a way that maybe they would prefer always and they had no control over it. And some was like as, as men. And as fathers, they had lost their authority. Um, so I suppose it's I've seen out more of those things, you know, than uh, as well as what was 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 happening in the prison and, and trying to reflect a bit more on that. And uh, and even then, I thought I thought I was um, you know being more more open and, and delving more into my personal feelings. Um, I remember my my former wife always telling me, "No, um, no, I didn't ask you how, what do you think." What, what did you feel? You know? And uh, in a sense, that's what I was trying to do. It was not just um, think and recall events, but how, 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 did, it, how did it feel mm. at that time? Um, it is, so, it is. I mean, I generally think it is therapeutic that people can talk about those things. I think it's a problem if, if you, um, if that's all you do, or if you live in the past, it's one thing, writing about the past and recalling it, but I think it's very important to remember it is the past. I don't let that's what I say at the start of my morning. Like I've lived another um, 40 odd years since the hunger strike. Uh, I've done a lot of living in that time, a lot of, you know, which is absolutely nothing to do with prison or the IRA or struggle or anything. It's just, you know, it's good times to be helping people. It's holidays, it's children, it's births. It's, um, but yeah, I think it is, if, if people can do it and maybe be assisted to do it or do it with safe space, then I think that can be therapeutic that they, I think it's very uh, damaging that people bottle up stuff, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be about, mm. you know, it doesn't struggle to be about any situation, domestic or always, you know. Finally, Lawrence, it, it is election season, as we've spoken <laughs> about. What do you make about the discourse um, on uh, Irish unity and indeed republicanism in general uh, it has certainly from from my my very Dublin focused perspective it, it has shifted uh, quite radically in the past decade decade and a half 
what do you make of the contemporary discourse um, around uh, Irish unity, let's say, and yeah. around the future of the of the North or the futures of the North? Well, okay. I mean, the situation has changed dramatically you know, in, in, in so many ways, and that's why I often see the prison as being a, a microcosm of what happened outside. Whenever criminalization was there, and then we had war. Um, whenever um, that policy was, was, was quietly dropped uh, as a result of our protest, then, then it became a quiet place. And then that changed the nature of what we were doing and allowed us to be involved in more sort of creative pursuits in, in such way in past times. Uh, and similarly on the outside, once um, there was a process that everybody could engage in, and that changed the nature of it. And you know, we're now aware of the, the Madams talks and, and all of that that led to the IRA uh, ceasefire in 84, then the Good Friday Agreement, and all of these things then take time. And of course, there's things breaking down and, and starting up again. And, and there are people who are Republicans who, who, who wouldn't agree with that and uh, still wanted to continue an arm struggle. And that happens so much in struggles around the world that they're not have everybody um, on the same page. But I think generally uh, the vast majority of people uh, involved in the Republican struggle went with the peace process and there was an awful lot of soul searching out again and debate and such like. I think, um, and I don't say this in some sort of uh, abusive way, but uh, people in the South, um, I, just, I always thought were very ignorant of the situation in the North. Not least because there's a section 31 censorship imposed uh, for, for several decades. So the voice of Northern or even Southern Republicans couldn't be hearing me, even the, I mean, the amazing case of Larry O'Toole, who took it, who's a trade unionist uh, and also a member of Sinn Féin, but he couldn't speak as a trade unionist when they're having a strike because he's a member of, uh, of Sinn Féin. So you end up with this, 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 this distorted uh, image of what's really going on in the North. And I think that has changed to a fair degree, but I think it's still. A lot of it is, is still there. Uh, I think the impact of partition, um, I think partition really worked in the sense that um, there's mentality in the south of, of, of 26, Ireland's 26 counties. Um, and then there's this other place up there, which uh, I remember Leo Fradker been asked the other year, do they have any branches abroad? And he said, yeah, they have one in Belfast. You know, um, that sort of, for me, epitomized that. But I think that's changing, and, and Republicanism has then changed and changed really because of the issues. I mean, if you look now at the elected uh, representatives of, of Sinn Féin, the over 50% of them are women. Um, in terms of age, I mean, the overwhelming majority would probably be older, at least under 50. I mean, there's very few who are still, um, I'm not getting into the ageism or anything, but I'm just saying it's been a, it's, They've moved with the times. I think Republicanism has, has moved. It's learned from the past what we need to do. Uh, it has a genuine concern about building its community. And I think that um, realizing that on the we're a small island with a small number of people, even if the population has, has grown over the last couple of decades, uh, it makes no sense at all to be divided in terms of health services, power services. And a lot of that has already been. Um, joined up in some sense. I mean, people now talk about there, there already is economic unity and really what we're looking at is political unity. And ironically, again, Brexit has really speeded up that process. Um, and I think what we're trying to deal with now is a situation that has happened many times in history in many other worlds where a colonial power, which goes in and divides and conquers, whether it's on religion or tribal difference or skin color or whatever else, but there was this division 
that it was on religion, the people in the north were Protestant, plantation, all the rest of it. And then they're supported up until a time where that all changed. The demographics have changed, the wider context has changed, the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now we're dealing with that, 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 the fallout from, from all of that. And um, yeah, it's going to be, I mean, I, I wrote about it the other day that, I mean, I've often said that, you know, oh, the forthcoming elections are an important one. And that's been said you know, for the last number of decades, but probably the one tomorrow is, is the most important one in recent times, because I think really if you end up with um, Sinn Féin being the, the dominant party, then really the whole origins of, of the state of Northern Ireland has, has, has crumbled. The orange state has already crumbled, but the, 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 the raison d'etre of the other is one and then we're really trying to do with um, how do you ship something like that? And I mean, I think it's, well, certainly in South Africa's Republic and no one's ever going to do the unions or what, what was, was, was done to the nationalists and Catholics. It's not going to happen that way anyway. Any sort of process of, of reunification is going to be something as with a Good Friday Agreement, it was going to take a long period of time. And um, but the thing is to, to start talking about it and to have credible, rational um, exchange of views across, you know, whether it's health service, economics, employment, social services, whatever it is. I just think that that all of us in this island, um, and I think actually a lot of people in in, in the Protestant unions from the Middle North um, have come to that realization themselves, and particularly. I suppose the pandemic has heightened that. And people have a real focus now on health services or lack of them, not having the ability to do it, not having control of their own budget, as the budget to the north, the, the subvention budget from the British, so on and so forth. Um, and I think that's why, and I think that the attempts by, um, well, the UP in particular to, to sort of ramp up the whole protocol thing hasn't really worked because it's like a, it's like a false. Um, I mean, if you're asked anybody really on the streets, well, how's, how's the protocol affecting you? Republic and order of this genius or nationalist, you wouldn't really know what to answer it because really they haven't noticed any big, big change. And that's similar to people who became like, I don't like his word dissident, but no, dissident Republicans trying to falsely recreate some sort of sense of real oppression there when it's not there. It's not 1969, it's not 1981 anymore. You know, so it takes time, but I think that the, that general movement uh, towards it sees it just now is, is, is common sense. They'll, they'll, they'll live on a, on a shared island. I don't care what it's, what it's called or um, you know how long it, it takes. I think that, that that process is there um, and people should be allowed time, but at the same time, there should be a process set in place. I think it now is a time and it really has been happening over the past year in organized talks around the country, with for people from very different communities and with very different sort of uh, backgrounds and maybe opinions. That's great. Get it all into nothing but and say, like, okay, if we're talking about a shared island, you know, what, what, what's it going to look like and what's, what do we need to take on board? Um, so it's, it's, it's change and um, change often frightens people. We're all, we're all sort of, a, you know, creatures of routine and, and conservative maybe at heart but uh, i think if, if things are done in a structured way i think there's a big onus on the irish government uh, to be involved to be involved with that there and, and lay out a process for it the way they did very successfully with other referendums on uh, 
same-sex marriage and women's right to choose. Um, and what you find is once you have structured, rational uh, discussion, then you blow away all of the myths. Because I suppose, unfortunately, that's what's often happened in the past, that myths have been allowed to you know, escalate and uh, interferes. And then once you have an opportunity to actually sit down with someone and explain it, they, they wonder what all the what was all the fuss about in the first place? So then I'm the, I'm the eternal optimist, and so I look on the bright side. Lawrence McKeown, the book is called Time Shadows. Highly recommended. Thank you so much um, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian, for having me.